You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the season finale of The Knock-On Effect. That's right. This is the uh, last Knock-On Effect episode you're going to hear for for a few months. Uh, We'll come back with the beginning of season two in February. Uh, In the meantime, though, you can watch this feed. We're going to release some interesting stuff. We're actually going to release full um, Real Vision interviews that have uh, appeared on the video site for subscribers, and we'll, we'll release them to you for free. With a little introduction uh, from us, so so don't worry, you'll, you'll, uh, if you're missing Alex and Justine in your life for uh, December and January, you'll still get that. Um, but yeah, so watch this feed for those interviews, and then again, we'll be back with the knock-on effect um, sometime in early February. Great, yeah, little goodies for you until we come back. Yeah, with that, let's uh, get into this week's episode. This is The Knock-On Effect, the show where we start with a thing you know and end up in a strange place, a weird and wonderful place. I'm Roger Hurst, and with me we have, as always, Justine Underhill and the fabulous Alex Rosenberg. I'm noticing a bit of a jingle there as you... uh... (laughs) Yes, one from my kids, fortunately, not one I bought myself. Oh yeah, no, I bought this many years ago and I was wearing it as a regular sweater until... Oh, you, you thought that actually looked good. I think actually someone's grandma knit it because there's no labels or anything, so... Oh, wow. Anyway. And then I'm a present. It's good. <laughs> this is the full outfit, I think, is brilliant. Yeah. So, I mean, as you can see, it's a pretty special episode we're in today. It's a special episode because this is the final episode of the first season. Yay! Yay! Yay. Rejoicing around the world. <laughs> exactly. So, what we covered, we've covered quite a lot, haven't we? Your job is to figure out where we're going before we get there. Okay. So, what, what do you think? Uh, oh, hey! Look who we have! It's the professor Hello, Morrison. We're all going to take a trip. We're in the aisle. aisle. Oh! Oops, did I break this? Oh my god. Now everyone's going to know that I'm not faithful to my diet. Quaker Oat Crunch Pillows. Alex! No, you've got you to get them slowing down your chin. <laughs> What's going to happen? All right, up, up, and away. Here we go. So I think we're going to kick off with, with Justin. It was episode one. It was... Wow. Um, it was uh, back in May, wasn't it? Something yeah, like that. Yeah, so long ago. So long, so long ago. ago. It was a uh, cochineal, cochineal, cochineal. Well, I have the it? correct pronunciation. Not that I'm going to pronounce it correctly, but they are cock e neals. I thought it was too. Um, but anyway, wow, so these, so much these are the May. red dye, red dye um, from bugs that you can find in many different food products, actually. So that whole episode. Oh, we have the bugs yeah, right here. So. We have a little. Yeah, the, these, are, these are the bugs. And of extract course, some, all the bugs themselves. These are the actual bugs oh. that are dried. 
um, and I'll pour some on the table. It doesn't really look like bugs, yeah. but it creates a really fabulous red dye. So this episode was basically about the US cracking down on trade and what that meant for red velvet cake. And so basically the quick summary of that knock-on effect was that the US is cracking down on trade. Um, that meant that other countries were strengthening trade partnerships, specifically Latin America and mm. Peru was working on other trade relations um, and they were very aggressive about establishing free trade relationships. And Peru happens to be the major exporter of these natural right. red dye. And so farmers actually make a living from smashing up these bugs that get then turned into food coloring. And so what's been a big problem is that uh, these there's huge demand for it and very limited supply. And so we were seeing price spikes and a lot of volatility in pricing. And we even had uh, the UK Premier Foods. I know you're a big fan of yeah. them. They make uh, Mr. Kipling cakes <laughs> and the Bachelor Soups. Mm -hmm. um, they continued- I uh, hasn't had one of those in a while. Yeah. <laughs> the soups I haven't, but I cut Kipling cakes all the time. The Battenberg is they're, particularly good. They're quite popular in yeah. the UK. Um, so they still use this dye. They still use the cochineal, cochineal. Cochineal. Um, but uh, they did consider switching to alternative colorings. Anyway, so the update that we have yeah. uh, today is that, so the New York Times actually released a little article that I thought was really fun. So it's a secret to that bright red drink, little bugs. So basically the story is about how Campari, which is the aperitivo, bright red, they actually stopped using these bugs mm -hmm. to flavor, or not to flavor, but to color the drink. And so that was in 2006, and that actually ended up leaving a huge market for other aperitivos to come in. So right now we're seeing a booming industry in the aperitivo market, specifically mm -hmm. in the US, mm -hmm. um, that have now started to use these bugs. They've picked it back up. And so it includes these brands. So we have the photos here. So it's Sink, Leopold Brothers, and Bruto Americano are just some of the drinks that are being used. Mm -hmm. um, what flavor is it? What's the sort of basic flavor of these drinks? So the, the red doesn't actually give it any flavor. It nice. they're, it's, it's, they're aperitivos. Mm. So you throw it, I think, throw it with some soda right. or, or Prosecco. Yeah, and, right. and, um, and it looks great on the shelves. And it, yes, it's very, it. very pretty red. Yeah. Um, and it, they're red just because of traditional purposes, not because of there's any specific reason there. Um, but I do have a quote from the article. Given the option of petroleum byproduct and smushed up bugs, the bugs won out, said Lance Winters, master distiller at St. George Spirits. Uh, so basically, this is something that we're seeing across a lot of different um, distillers in the U.S. And now this isn't vegan. Um, no. Because no. these are bugs, um, but this is sort of a new trend that we are seeing. So I have to just say, though. Yeah. I believe the knock on effect was about how it would get harder to have the coconut in the US and it would be less plentiful. Yeah. So this is, I will say, a little bit of a counter force, but I mean, a huge part of it was because of Campari. Right. And because of them backing out of the market, it actually ended up leaving a big hole. So a little counter to my thought, but it's. It's on the margins, so maybe it is on the margins a little bit more difficult, but we are having a resurgence right now. Okay, that's great stuff. Yeah. And, and so I think it was episode 12 where we talked about economic disaster in Turkey and you know, mayhem, and yes. that led to spicy hazelnuts. Yeah, so, so the thesis there was that Turkey was, was having trouble because of U.S. sanctions and tariffs, it was hurting the lira. Weaker lira means it's cheaper for them to export hazelnuts to countries with relatively stronger currencies. As a result, there was worries about uh, U.S. hazelnut producers, which are concentrated in the great state of Oregon. And then, you know, perhaps that would lead to people selling more spicy uh, products or, or products that are 
dressed up rather than just commodity hazelnuts. Because they wanted to basically make them more attractive. Yeah, so, different. so you differentiate a, a bit, just as, as Diamond did with almonds. So it, and I went to the supermarket, I saw like 25 different flavors of almonds, no flavors of hazelnuts. So what has happened since then is actually, well, uh, Turkey released the pastor, U.S. walked back sanctions, didn't uh, decrease the tariffs on steel and aluminum, I don't think, which is a bit strange. But the price of hazelnuts has been in, in trouble. So We have some here. Oh, there we go. Thank you. I'm sure these were good and cheap. So now in 2016, the minimum uh, price for a pound of hazelnuts was a buck 18. In 2017, it fell to 96 and a half cents. This year, there's a new three-tiered pricing system, but the minimum initial price ranges from 62 cents up to 91 cents. So just straight down. Um, of course, you have higher prices for Casina and McDonald hazelnuts and lower for Jefferson and Barso Barcelona. You guys already know that. But, but according to the, to the uh, Capital Press, and, and a good part of doing these recaps was I went to the same trade publications that I you know, oh, saw. Yeah, they've been following up on it. According to the Capital Press, and I quote, the downward pressure on prices in 2018 is due to significantly increased tariffs on hazelnuts in China, a major market for Oregon's crop, as well as a devalued currency in Turkey, which had effectively reduced prices for hazelnuts from the world's predominant producer. Gary Rodowski, a farmer near Vida, Oregon, told the Capital Press that he, quote, doesn't expect growers who have made a deposit on new trees and prepared fields for planting will pull back on new orchard due to this year's price slump. There is still a bright future for hazelnuts over the coming decade, so the short-term problems in China and Turkey aren't going to affect long-term planting decisions. So we're still up here on track for, um, for spicy hazelnuts, I think, and as, as hazelnuts continue to come online. Oh, so there still will be price decreases even as oh, it's I, temporary. Well, I think the price will recover. Okay. Well, so then we might not have spicy hazelnuts because they don't need to differentiate. No, they, they do. Yeah. They do badly, badly. I mean, also, this is terrible. Any other flavors that are other than spice? I mean, maybe sugar coated? No, but that's, you know, you could have chocolate hazelnuts. Yes, you could have yes. a lot of options. I'll take chocolate hazelnuts. Yeah, so would I actually. Um, so that goes on to episode 13, the next episode after that. And we had China Waste Ban. Oh, yeah. So a little bit of a continuation of our China mm -hmm. theme here. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that, that was actually a big deal. So this year, after three decades of accepting the world's recycling and scrap waste, China said no more. Basically what happened was they said that they wouldn't accept a certain number of different types of scrap. They also said that they would only accept plastic scrap that was 99.5% pure. That mm. is a very hard standard to reach. Yeah. And that completely upended this... $200 billion global recycling trade that goes on. So I just want to take a quick question. Do you think you can recycle this? Oh. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what it actually is, the glue on the bottom okay. is a contaminant. So this would make it 90, not 99.5% pure. Couldn't so recycle it in China. Couldn't recycle, yeah. Um, and But it also, the ribbon is um, considered a tangler and it gets caught in the machinery. Right. And so that's the problem. Is, is that, that the technical term for it? Uh, that's the technical All term right. that I have. They're tanglers. Um, and so that's actually a problem, not only for like recycling in the US, but then for if this gets put into a container of recycling, that would then possibly tangle. get, yeah, it would tangle it and get rejected from China. So it's created a pretty sticky situation for a lot of recyclers, um, wreaking havoc on the industry. And suddenly it costs way more to recycle plastic because China wasn't accepting mm. a lot of it. Um, so just a few headlines here that we've seen. Um, and so these aren't too much of a surprise, which is recycling fees 
rise slightly. This is the Arlington Times after China ban on dirty recyclables. Okay. So this is sort of local news that's happened mm -hmm. December 10th, so recently. Then we have um, this from the Japan Times, which is also recent. China's import ban on plastic waste pushes Japan and other rich nations to rethink trash options. Mm. And I just have a quote from that article that says, but instead of finding solutions, it appears the problem has only gotten worse, especially with the exploitation of developing countries, including Malaysia and Vietnam, that lack regulatory infrastructure to prevent illegal dumping. So that's sort of what's been going on. And this is a continuation of what we talked about during the knock-on effect right. episode, um, but it is coming to fruition. The real news is that China wow. tightens ban further on waste imports. So this is actually a big deal. Basically, they banned 24 different items. Mm -hmm. It's now expanding to 31. So Xinhua, the state news agency, citing a government document said late on Sunday, this is in November, that imports of 32 types of solid waste would be banned from December 31st, including hardware, ships, auto parts, titanium, wood, stainless steel, waste, and scrap. So before they banned 24 categories, now they're banning 32. This is going to make the situation even worse. Wow. And yeah. we were seeing there's a lot of stockpiling having to go on at some of these sort of sites in the US. Is yeah. that getting worse? That is getting worse. So I've been seeing mm, reports. Yes. Um, a lot of places or recyclers have been actually just holding on to their scrap because they don't know what to do with it. Or it's just been going to the landfill yeah. um, right. because it's cheaper just to send it there. It's crazy. It's it costs about 300 to 500 to send an entire container of recyclables to China or the Pacific, across okay. the Pacific Ocean. It costs like a few thousand dollars just to send it to the south, from the west coast to the south, which is where many of the recycling plants are. I think the Times yesterday was saying that it's booming in Indonesia, so another one like Malaysia and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and um, Vietnam, which are just taking all this slack, I guess. Yeah. Well, from that, the final frontier, space. Yes. Episode 16. I think it was 17. Was it? Oh, well, we're close. And we're close. In space, time changes, it could have been. So I don't have a prop, by the way, because I think I smashed the, uh, the toy we had for this. So, so I discussed why NASA's push to go to Mars would lead them to uh, push for more privatization in shallow space, and that could lead to a huge pr proliferation of the space economy, which might help countries like Luxembourg, who are heavily invested in satellites. So, you know, we, we've, we're definitely still going down that road. Um, the biggest news in the space is that NASA's uh, InSight lander safely arrived on Mars, and it actually captured this sound of Martian winds. See what you think of this. Uh, I don't know. So that's Martian winds. Yeah, that's Martian winds. So meanwhile, they've announced that nine companies, including Lockheed Martin, are going to compete for funding to develop lunar vehicles as part of a private-public partnership, just what we've been talking about. That, that means that uh, their plan to privatize low Earth orbit uh, is alive and well, and, and actually maybe we'll see privatization of the moon. Meanwhile, uh, privatization of the moon? Well, not not anytime soon, but it'll it'll happen. I mean, you know, the government starts out by doing it themselves, and then then it gets privatized. Um, meanwhile, the there have been a lot of uh, stuff in low Earth orbit, uh, including there's going to be an art project like a, a this satellite's going to open and it's going to look like a star. I don't know why we're doing this, but so that's happening. For beauty. I know, but like... Do we have enough stars already? Yeah, that's what I figured. But uh, interestingly, so I discussed the Kessler effect, which is the uh, idea, not a hit show on FX, but actually it's the idea that a lot of uh, things orbiting around, if you have a lot of uh, things could hit each other, create explosions, and then 
kind of jeopardizes all of uh, space because then you can't send more things up. So the FCC is reviewing its longstanding rules on space debris. Huh. So they're uh, they're thinking about it. And actually, I saw you know the Economist mentioned the Kessler effect. This recent uh, issue I was reading it this morning. So. So it's becoming popular. Uh, it's nice to beat the economist on a story. Yeah. I'm just saying. Um, any update on space mining? Do you no, think that's, gonna... space mining is BS. So that's not going to happen. Like Who knows? There are a bunch of rare Earths up there, apparently. So yes. maybe it could become valuable. Yeah. Episode 10, Justine. It was the dairy industry and the cheese surplus. Yes. Mm. That was a good one. That was, that was a fun one. Um, so basically what, what's been going on is that there's a surplus of milk. And so that has led to farmers not being able to sell their milk specifically in the U.S. And so then they need to turn it into something else that lasts a little bit longer. So then they just have been turning it into cheese, um, butter and milk powder as well, but mostly cheese. And so now we have a glut of cheese. And then we kind of talked a little bit about the Illuminati of cheese, which was basically um, dairy management, which was created um, with the aid of the USDA um, and also Sneaking the dairy industry. cheese into all these things. Different things. Reading. They're behind some of the biggest fast food hits of the last decade. So the quesalupa was, you know, just they're finding ways to put more cheese in different things. Um, they also worked with Domino's on the extra cheesy pizzas. So yeah, when you're eating cheese, maybe maybe dairy management is behind it. Well, anyway, uh, the big news is that the U.S., Mexico, and Canada mm -hmm. signed the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. That's USMCA, uh, which is new NAFTA. Wait, sorry. It's called USMCA? Yeah. Do the MCA stand for Mexico-Canada agreement? Yes. I really feel like the other one's got short shrift there. What do you mean? It's like the U.S. MCA. It's like the U.S. But then the Mexico MCA, and just yeah, it just boom into one. Mm. Into well, we have two two initials, so well, we get we get more priority. Right. I now call it new NAFTA because U.S. MCA is just not quite as not catchy. Cool. Not yeah, nice. it's kind of hard to say. Well, anyway, that actually that agreement that was just signed um, had major implications for dairy farmers. Mm. Um, so basically, um, Canada has historically put really high. Um, import tariffs on dairy products because they want to protect their own farmers. And, you know, milk is a staple product and they want to make sure that their farmers have certain protections. Anyway, the deal actually changes Canada's pricing structure and grants the U.S. oversight in the administration of Canada's dairy system. So this is a pretty big deal. Uh, these concessions will actually boost the amount of milk, cheese, and cream the U.S. is going to be able to ship to Canada tariff-free. And so we have an article from Bloomberg right up here. So new NAFTA makes Canada farmers losers as milk trade opens up. Wait, I thought, how's that? They're sending more milk, right? No, so basically the US is sending more milk to Canada. Ah, got it. And so I have a quote here. This doesn't fix the problems of American oversupply, said Henry Holtman, a third generation dairy farmer in Rosser, Manitoba, who is putting his expansion plans on hold to review the impact of the deal. It's a slap in the face to Canadian producers who work very hard at managing supply. So basically, you're going to have a lot more milk and a lot more cheese from the U.S. going into Canada after this deal. So that actually might end up doing something about the milk and cheese glut that we have in the U.S. So, so basically, Canada is telling U.S. dairy farmers there's a place you can go where you've got to have a good time. Ba, ba, no? No. U.S. No. Okay. No. No. Cheese and wine. Oh. Cheese and wine. Right, on to wine. In episode 21, Why Counterfeit Wine Matters, I talked about rapidly escalating prices for Burgundy, mostly red, but actually a little white Burgundy as well. And it turns out um, that the trend of higher prices is not nearly limited to the Pinot Noir 
mecca of, uh, of Burgundy. According to wine auctioneer Frank Martel of Heritage Auctions, and I quote, the Bordeaux market has certainly seen a swell in attention as the Burgundy market continues to price itself beyond the reach of many longstanding Burgundy lovers. So pour one out for people who've loved Burgundy for a long time and now can't, can't afford it. So speaking of Bordeaux, so Christie's sold an imperial of 1989 Petrus. Have you ever had a 1989 Petrus? No, a Petrus, yes. Petrus. That's the one, yes. <laughs> you've, had, you've had it? No, I haven't. I've had a 98. Oh, are it's you nice serious? Thing. Yeah, yeah. It's very, oh my gosh. It's a good year for it. Okay, good to so, know. So, so Christy sold an Imperial 89 Petrus for, uh, Imperial by the way is, I think it's four bottles, is, is for 54,000 Swiss francs, about uh, 60,000 bucks. Size would be called a, a Methuselah in Burgundy, not, rather than a Imperial in Bordeaux. And, and at a December's uh, Zaki's auction in New York, which unfortunately I was out of town for, I was planning to go, but um, a six liter bottle of, of California wine, 1974 Heights Martha's Vineyard, sold for $96,330, easily setting re the record for an American wine sold at a commercial auction. Wow. And it's not even just wine. So at the end of November at a Christie's auction in London, a Macallan, the Scotch whiskey, created an a, a bottle of Macallan, basically, they created this whiskey in 1926, bottled it 60 years later, and then it was painted after that. It was sold for, this bottle of whiskey, 1.2 million pounds. What? Oh. Good Lord. I guess it's hand-painted, so that helped out. And so, and, and on the whole, just to zoom out a bit, global sales of fine and rare wine at auction totaled $70.4 million in the third quarter, up from 53.7 in Q3 of last year. Uh, according to Wine Spectator, so we're in a bubble. It could indicate it could indicate a bubble. I, I, yeah. I will say luxury goods spending and, and increasing, and it is very much it's the the investment side because I mean it's not an easy. You go, I've given up on Burgundy, so I'm going to have a completely different one from Bordeaux. I mean it's not exactly a kind of they're not commensurate with each other. You probably maybe go to a Rhone or even an Italian, right? Unless you're just looking at the price. And yeah, they're all everything in France is pretty um, over the top, and even the Rome places are getting that way now as well. It's true. It's, I've, I've seen some pretty high prices for Chateau Neuf. Finally, Justine, uh, we covered so many topics. There must be some more updates on some of the other ones. What, what yes. else do okay, we have? Okay, so I have a few quick updates. Great. Don't need to be anything big, but one of the episodes we talked about truck driving yes. and the trucker mm. shortage. And if you haven't listened to that podcast where we talked to a trucker, that <laughs> is was great. That is great podcast. Yeah. yeah. Well, so anyway, what we talked about was the truck driving shortage, but then also new regulations that were coming in place that were basically drivers had to keep electronic logs of their hours. So that was a whole new thing that was sort of upsetting the industry. Um, and um, my prediction was that wages were going to increase. Yeah. I mean, it was almost inevitable and it looks like we're getting that. So one of my predictions played out at least. And basically we have from Bloomberg here, JB Hunt Transportation Services Inc. said its contract services unit has raised wages by around 10% over the last 12 to 18 months to recruit new drivers. And even better for truck drivers, we're getting this. Trucking companies are offering their drivers bonuses as high as $20,000. Nice earned bonus, I think. So that's sort of coming into fruition. And then we had another episode where we talked about honeybee collapse. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, the honey colony issues and the shortage, basically, that we have in honeybees. And so now we actually might have a vaccine on the way. So the world's first oh, wow. insect vaccine could help bees fight off deadly disease. Now, some people are skeptical yeah. about how effective this could be, specifically because insects' immune systems don't have antibodies. So they basically, they essentially lack memory 
for being able to fight diseases. But this is promising. It's a, a, a vaccine that the bees could eat, and it's actually possibly one step towards helping honeybees come back. How are they eating it? Because have they got a food source that they? Yeah, so it would with? be like something. It would be like some sugary material that they mix right. it in with. They're doing this research in. But then, then your honey is going to taste like medicine. Yeah, maybe they won't want to eat it. Your honey will taste medicinal. Truffled oh. honey, fantastic. Truffled honey with cheese. Good to know. Deal well, exactly. Cheese gloves and there's a reason that all the pictures look like. Let's see, we got this one. Oh my gosh. We got this one. I mean, this is look at this. This is this is him in his in his natural environment. In my pump. And you're looking well today. I'm in my pump, but looking pretty good there as well. There's a lot of circumstance in this one. So apart from these, which I hope people will take away, what are the big takeaways from this year's season? Wow. Well, I would have to say that. Themes that kept coming up were globalization. Yes. China. Very much so. Uh, the blockchain, at least for me, because nah. I think about solutions and I feel like the blockchain could solve a lot of different things. Um, yeah, I was surprised with my research how many products China controls or China mm. has basically an oversight of, of so many different aspects of the economy from apples to wine right. to yeah. honey and adultery, like messing with the honey and fake honey. There was like so many different aspects to this. Well, and because I think China is changing more than other countries, so we're seeing that change affect itself. You know, there was maybe a period of 20 or 50 years when there was a rapid increase in global connection. There was more global shipping. There was supply chains became more global. There was just-in-time shipping where you depend on, you know, things that, that were happening in the country, the place where it was being shipped to. And of course, the internet and, and, and satellites, by the way, led, led to a lot more global connection. And in a lot of places, and this came up in the space episode as well, there has been an effort to disentangle for countries to take more control over what they're doing. So, so you, you know, your satellites are rotating around the, the globe. You don't want China to be able to explode a, you know, to, to coll collide two satellites into each other and disrupt your global communications. Or you don't want China's rule about trash to change the way that, that you recycle. Yeah. But the genie can't really be put back in the bottle. So we're seeing these weird half measures where people are trying to step back from global connection. And it's changing the world in these unpredictable ways because you can't go back in time to a less connected world it's just, it just as, you know, and, and even, it's not just the U.S. doing this. China's doing this as well by saying, all right, enough with all your trash. Yeah. It, it, it's a very interesting dynamic. I mean, it's just in simple terms, we probably passed the point of peak globalization. So that, that kind of interconnectedness, although technologically it'll probably increase, there is now a desire to become a little bit more, I wouldn't say self-sufficient, but there's a realization that, that self-sufficiency may have gone out of the window for certain countries. We talked about the rare earths as well yeah. on that one. Mm. So I think we've seen that, that peak globalization. And now I think there's a, a sensible sort of slightly inward look. And people say that's a bad thing, but actually it's a rebalancing of an excess. And globalization probably got to an excess. So I think it's a fair move that we're seeing, but it feels unusual and it feels like it's pulling us apart. Well, it certainly provides a lot of fodder for season two. Well, that's right. And that does it for this year. Well, thanks for joining us and thanks for um, sticking with us. You know, a lot of love to uh, Colbeer J and our other commenters who have kind of come, come along, yeah, come aboard for some of the ride. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of uh, helped us develop along the journey. Yes. Thank you, Colbeer. Yeah. Thank you. Well, anyway, that does it for this week's Knock on Effect. We'll see you guys next year. See you then.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.